Welcome. We're glad that you are with us today, whether you're with me now here in the sanctuary or you're over there in East Hall or watching online in Aurora Restoration Chapel. Welcome. We're glad that you're here. My name is Zach. I am the director of Orchard Inio, which here at CCC is our church planning initiative because we believe that every neighborhood of Northeast Ohio needs a local gospel preaching church in it so that wherever you live, you can find a church with people who are like you, who live where you live, who are learning about Jesus alongside you. We're going to continue this morning our sermon series we're calling Great Question. And really the essence of this series is this, that here at CCC we believe it's okay to ask questions. It's good to ask questions, that God invites the questioner, that God loves those with questions, and so do we. And we want to try to help you walk alongside you as you ask some of these great questions about God and the Bible and Christianity. So what we did a couple weeks ago is solicited from you and various others online eight questions uh, that people wanted to hear us talk about. And so we've taken questions eight through five, and we're answering them every week in our podcast, Church Unplugged, which I hope you are downloading and listening to and sharing, and most importantly, finding helpful. And then questions four through one we're answering here in our weekend services. So question four was last week, and then question three today, the question in front of us is this, how can God be loving and send someone to hell? How can God be loving and send someone to hell? That's a great question, and I hope to help you think through that question this morning as we turn together, if you have a Bible, to the Gospel of Luke chapter 16. We're going to look at verses 19 through 31. And if you don't have a Bible, no problem. Those verses are going to be on the screen behind me. But as you're turning to Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31, I think it's important, given our topic, to start with an acknowledgement and an apology. First, the acknowledgement. Talking about hell is really, really hard. And the reason why it's hard is because for us, it is intensely personal. We are thinking about ourselves and what will happen to us when we die. We are thinking about those we love and those we care about, those around us and what's going to happen to them. That is incredibly personal. We're thinking about those we love who maybe have already passed. And I just want you to know that I know that that I know for me, I'm going to be talking about it at 30,000 feet, kind of at the conceptual level, but for you, it's personal, and I have spent a great deal of time in prayer this week hoping that I will do that justice, that I will handle it in a way that understands that it's personal. But then also, I want to start with an apology, which is to say that if you are here and you are not a Christian, I shudder to think about how hell has been used in your life. What you have heard shouted, what you've read on a sign, what a family member or friend has said to you, what you've heard in a church service, I'm sure a great deal of violence has been done under this idea of hell, and I just, I'm sorry for that. And I, I just know for you, there's no way you're going to hear me this morning unless you decide right now to extend me the grace of saying you're going to disassociate this message from those experiences. That, that you're going to let me start at neutral, start at zero, and be willing to hear afresh 
this idea, and I hope you'll do that. But also I hope you'll look with me at Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19 through verse 31. This is Jesus speaking, and these are the words of Jesus, and here's what he says. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame." But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is God's Word. To help us think about this question, how can God be loving and send someone to hell, I want to use three points, just kind of an outline, to help us think about the question and to bring this passage to bear on the question. If you're a note taker, you can write these down, but if you're not, no problem, just kind of have them in your mind to plot our course, and those three points are this. I want to talk about love and God, love and hell, love and us. Love and God, love and hell, and love and us. Let's start with love and God. There is an assumption floating underneath the surface behind the question, how can God be loving and send someone to hell? And that assumption is that God is loving. And that is something many of us assume, but it is also an assumption that drives the question. After all, if God's not loving, hell makes more sense. But if God is loving, then how do we think about, how should we think about hell? And I think most people who believe in God have this assumption. If we were to go on the street and stop the average man or woman and ask them, do you believe in God? And if they said yes, and we said, well, what do you believe is true of God? Tell me one thing you think is true of God that most people would say, God is loving. God is love. God loves us. But where does that come from? 
What, what is that assumption rooted in? After all, it's possible that there would be a God and he would be unloving, that he would be hateful, that he would be cruel. Where does the assumption that God is loving come from? And you might say, well, who cares? It's, it's an assumption we all have. It's a nice thought. Why does it have to come from somewhere? But the reason why is because assumptions don't help you when you're in difficult times or dealing with difficult topics. And, and one of the ways you know that is the question itself. How can God be loving and send someone to hell? In that question is, I've always thought God is loving. But then I learned about hell. And that made me go back and say, well, wait a minute, why is it that I think God is loving? And I realized I didn't have an answer to that. Why is God loving? It's a good question. How do we know that? That's a good question. And it's a question Jesus, in this passage, is inviting us to ask. Jesus is not turned off by people with questions. Jesus does not turn away people with questions. In fact, in this story, he's inviting them. He's talking about hell. He knows what's, what questions that's going to bring up in our minds. But even more than that, Jesus is hitting us with a question that comes even before the hell question. Here it is. How can God be loving and there be a Lazarus? After all, when you read the story, here's this guy's life. He lives in abject poverty. He, he is laid every day at the gates of a wealthy man hoping that when the garbage comes out, there will be something in the garbage that he can eat. He, he's so physically afflicted, his entire body is covered in sores. And he's so weak and sick and tired and maybe just resigned to his fate that even when dogs who come presumably to also go through the garbage begin to lick his sores, he doesn't even have the energy to shoo them away. Lazarus is living in hell on earth. And it's fair to ask, if God is loving, then why is there a Lazarus? If God is loving, why does anyone live that, that way? If God is loving, why are so many people in poverty and so many people sick and so many people hurting? Let alone, why is there a hell? Most people will wrestle with this question, and in wrestling, they'll turn one of two ways. For some people, the existence of Lazarus will be a reason to reject faith altogether. They'll say, I, I simply cannot believe in a God, let alone a good God, a loving God, a powerful God in a world with so many hurting people. That Lazarus's existence means that God does not. Others will form their religion around this. They will say, well, maybe God is loving, but maybe God also keeps score. And that maybe Lazarus is getting what he deserves. Lazarus maybe is a really bad guy and God is punishing him. This is, after all, what the idea of karma teaches. That when you see Lazarus laying on the ground, covered in sores, begging, going through the garbage, you shouldn't feel sad for him, and you shouldn't help him. The reason why he's suffering is because in a past life, he was very evil and he's getting what he deserves. But Jesus won't let us go either of those directions. Instead, Jesus is telling us this difficult story of Lazarus and hell precisely because he wants us not to have an assumption that God is loving, but to have a foundation for the idea that God is loving. 
Jesus tells this story to show us God's love, and you can see that in two ways. The first is that Lazarus has a name. And you might say, well, well big deal, Zach. I mean, when you, when you write a story, when you tell a story, you give the characters names. That's not significant except for this. It, most scholars believe Jesus told 60 parables across the four gospels, 60 stories like this meant to teach a message. In the gospel of Luke alone, there are 24 stories like this. In only one of them is there a character with a name. Only one and that character is Lazarus. In most of the stories Jesus tells, you get labels like the rich man, a farmer, a man, a merchant, a sailor, but you never get a name. Only once, only in one story, is there a character with a name. Why is that significant? Because Jesus is telling us, even though it looks like God has forgotten Lazarus, even though it looks like God's unaware of what's happening, even though it looks like God is distant, God is uncaring, God not only cares about Lazarus, God knows his name. God loves him. And for some people here this morning, that's the most important thing I'm gonna say. Because maybe like Lazarus, your life has been difficult. You never get a lucky break, always get the short end of the stick. And you're tempted to say, God doesn't love me. God doesn't even know I exist. But Jesus says, Lazarus could have said that, but God knew who he was. God loved him. God even knew his name. God didn't love him generically. He loved him specifically. But the second thing Jesus says is that God loves him a great deal. Look at what, where Lazarus goes when he dies. We're told that when Lazarus dies, Angels carry him to Abraham's side. Older translations will say Abraham's bosom. And you say, well, why is that important? Well, here's why. Everybody knows God loves Abraham. Everybody knows that when Abraham died, he went to heaven. Everybody knows that when Abraham died, he didn't just go to heaven. He went to like the VIP section. He's Abraham. That in heaven, wherever God is, there's Abraham. But wherever Abraham is, there's Lazarus. Because God doesn't just love Lazarus, he loves him just as much as Abraham. And that's how much God loves you. No, no matter what has been true for you, no matter what your life has looked like, God knows your name. God loves you. He loves you as much as he loves Abraham. He loves you, not generically, specifically, individually. And you say, okay, great, that's good news. Then what about hell? And that leads me to my second point, love and hell. Modern readers try to solve this tension by saying, well, maybe when the Bible talks about hell, it doesn't mean hell in the traditional sense. Maybe it's figurative. Maybe it's metaphorical. Maybe it's symbolic. But I want you to see that that is not what Jesus means when he talks about hell. In this story, you, you, you get the traditional understanding of hell. The rich man dies. He is instantly in torment and in anguish. It's hot there. He wants water. He is suffering consciously in an ongoing way. Jesus has in mind the traditional understanding of hell. How do we reconcile that with the idea that God is loving? 
Well, I think the way you do that is by saying, if God is loving, then hell must be loving. And if hell is loving, who is it loving to? And to answer that, you're going to have to look with me at who the rich man was. Here's what we're told about the rich man. He was very wealthy. He, he dressed in purple and fine linen all the time. He feasted not, not every once in a while or on the weekends or when the weather was nice. He feasted sumptuously every day. So he's probably pretty good size. And he couldn't care less about Lazarus. Now, it's within his power to bring Lazarus into his house, to clean Lazarus up, to feed him, to care for him, but he doesn't do that. You, you see the kind of the, the nature of the rich man when you contrast it with another story Jesus told called the Good Samaritan, where that man gets off of his animal and he takes a hurting man and he puts him on the animal and he takes him to a hotel and he checks him in and he pays the bills and he tends to his wounds. The rich man does the opposite of that. He, he couldn't care less. And you might say, well, maybe he doesn't know Lazarus is there, but that's not true because in hell, who does he say Abraham should send for a glass of water? He names him. Lazarus, he knows who he is. He knows his name. He just doesn't care. So let me ask you a question. What would Lazarus think if he ran into the rich man in heaven? At, you know, Heinen's. Can you imagine Lazarus stumbling into the rich man and saying, what are you doing here? And the rich man saying, oh, good news, in his you know, full 21st century wisdom, saying, good news, turns out God is super merciful. God is so kind, so forgiving. It, it, it turns out it doesn't matter what you did in life. It doesn't matter who you were. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. God, is, he just lets you in. God is so loving. I wonder if in that moment Lazarus would think that God was loving at all. Because after all, if God loves Lazarus, if Lazarus matters to God, then what happens to Lazarus has to matter to God. If Lazarus has value to God, then those who deny Lazarus's value have to matter to God. We tend to ask the question, how can a loving God send anyone to hell from the perspective of the rich man? The question makes less sense if you ask it from the perspective of Lazarus. Let me tell you when this clicked for me. I was a young pastor. Well, I guess I'm still a young pastor. I was a younger pastor. And I was sitting with a married couple in my office who were struggling in their marriage, young, newly married. And it seemed to me that the problem in their marriage was that the wife was very unforgiving. The husband was like most of us. He made a lot of mistakes. And she tended to hold on to them for a long time. So I asked her, I, I said, why, why do you think you struggle with forgiveness. She didn't miss a beat. She looked right at me. She said, oh, that's because of my dad. I said, what do you mean? She said, when I was a child, my father repeatedly assaulted me. I've never forgiven him. So it's hard for me to forgive anyone. And I said, what keeps you from thinking about forgiveness with your dad? 
And this is what she said. She said, if I forgive him, he gets away with it. She said, nobody else knows what he did. He was never arrested. He was never shamed. I didn't get any justice. The only thing that I have is that I know what he did, and he knows what he did, and I won't forgive him because he's not going to get away with it. And it hit me in that moment that if this woman was going to be convinced that God loved her, there had to be a hell. Let me, let me tell you, if you're here this morning and your life is defined and marked by something that has happened to you, if your chief identity is one of victim, that you can point back to what was done to you and trace the shrapnel of that event or those events in your life. And so you have always wondered, does God even care about me? Does God love me? Does God even care about what happened to me? Do I have value to God? That What I want you to hear this morning is that hell is a monument to the reality that victims matter to God. No one gets away with anything. You matter. What happened to you matters. And though it may seem like right now there's no justice for you, there is a day coming when your victimizer will stand before God and he or she will make excuses and he or she will give reasons and they will say to God, don't you love me, God? Aren't you merciful, God? Aren't you loving? And God will say, I am. I love the one you hurt too much to let this go. For Lazarus, heaven can't be heaven if the rich man's there. And God can't love him if he sweeps it under the rug. You see, when we ask, how can a loving God send anyone to hell, we're only thinking about it from the perspective of the victimizer. But from the perspective of, of the victim, you might ask, if God loves me, how can there not be a reckoning? How can there not be an accounting? How can there not be a judgment? How can there not be a hell? There has to be. God, if you love me, there has to be. When this becomes difficult, however, is when you realize that though many of us here are victims, all of us are also victimizers. After all, if you read this story about the rich man and Lazarus, what really is his crime? He's arrogant, he's indifferent, He's extravagant. All he cares about is that he has what he wants and what he needs. He's totally oblivious to the needs of others. Is anyone here going to say that that hasn't been true of us? We live in one of the wealthiest nations in the history of the world. We live in one of the healthiest, or, or wealthiest regions of the wealthiest nations in the world. Are we really going to say we're never guilty of indifference? of extravagance, of opulence at the cost of helping others. None of us, I couldn't avoid that charge. You couldn't avoid that charge. But here's the other thing. Are we really going to say that we haven't hurt people, that we haven't offended people, that we haven't made people feel small, that there are no victims in our wake? Are we really going to say that there's no one who would say heaven isn't heaven if Zach's there? If God loves me, he won't let Zach in. 
Because God will know what Zach said. God will know what Zach did. God will care about that. He can't let Zach in. Do you really think there aren't people who would say that about you? See, when you think about it that way, about God loving people so much that he can't let what happens to them go, the question stops being, how can a loving God send anyone to hell? And the question starts becoming, how can a loving God let anyone in to heaven? How can heaven be heaven if I'm there? And that leads me to my third point, which is to talk about love and us. There are only two reasons Jesus would tell us this story, right? The first is he wants to threaten us. That like the guy on the college campus with a bullhorn, he wants to tell us all that we're going to hell and he enjoys it. Or he's warning us. I think it's the second one and the reason why is the name Lazarus. I told you that in 60 stories, Jesus never gives a character a name. Never, not even once, except for this time, Lazarus. And and, and you would think if Jesus picks one name to give a character, that name matters. That Jesus isn't just saying, oh, you know, John, Steve, Bob, Joe. He's picking a particular name. And we say, well, why would he pick the name Lazarus? Well, because Lazarus, in the original language, means God is my helper. See, Jesus is telling us that ultimately the difference between who goes to hell and who goes to heaven is not who's rich and who's not, but who helps themselves and who looks to God. After all, in this story, you get the impression that the rich man is used to taking care of himself. He provides for himself. He feeds himself. He clothes himself. Even in hell, he's telling Abraham to have somebody get him some water, send somebody to his brothers. Don't use the Bible. Use resurrection. He speaks over and over again because he will take care of himself. But Lazarus never speaks, not even once. He's content to let God speak for him. I think Jesus is telling us that if we would heed his warning and find our way to heaven, it will only be if God speaks for us. He says, well, how could it be that God would speak on my behalf for heaven? And the answer to that comes when you keep your eyes on Jesus. Jesus who comes from heaven. Jesus, who is the only guy who's ever lived about whom no one thinks he shouldn't be in heaven. There is no one who would look at the life of Jesus and say, he doesn't belong in heaven. Heaven isn't heaven if Jesus is there. If God loves me, he won't let Jesus in. Jesus has no victims. And yet on the cross, Jesus will endure hell. It's Jesus for whom something is dipped and then put on his tongue. It's Jesus who suffers in torment and anguish. It's Jesus who will feel a chasm between himself and God so great that he will cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, Jesus Christ, the Son of Heaven, came in order to go through hell for us so that we might be welcomed in heaven. Jesus came to become the victimizer. Jesus came 
so that all of your victims and all of my victims would see justice, that they would look at Jesus and say, he's dying because I matter. He's dying because what happened to me matters. He's dying because the God sees what's been done to me. But the victimizer looks at the cross and says, he's come to go through hell so I don't have to. You see, if hell is a monument to God's love for victims, the cross is a monument for God's love for victimizers. And we are both. We are both. That young lady sitting in my office saying, I can't forgive my dad because he gets away with it if I do, needs to hear that no one gets away with anything. That one day her dad will stand before God and God will say to him, she matters too much. Or her dad will look to Jesus. And the night Jesus is arrested when he says, God, Father, is there any other way? God will say to his only son, she matters too much. Someone has to go through hell because she matters. I don't know your story. I, I, I don't know if you identify with victim more or victimizer more, but here's what I know. There is no way to heaven but that God speaks for you. There is no way to heaven but that Jesus went through hell for you. If someone were to run into you in heaven and they were to say, why are you here? The only answer that's true is I am here because Jesus went through hell on my behalf. And that's why if you're here, I hope you hear this sermon as a warning. I hope that you don't think God's too loving to judge you. He's too loving not to. I hope that you don't think he'll sweep it under the rug. He won't. He loves those you hurt too much. He loves too, you too much to let those who've hurt you sweep it under the rug. The answer is not to sweep your sin under the rug. It is to let God pour it out on his son at the cross. My prayer for you, if you don't know Jesus, is at the end of this service when our prayer team is up here that you will come up and you'll just say, I need to meet Jesus. God shouldn't let me into heaven, but I'm open to hearing more about how he's made a way through Jesus. If you're here and you're a victim and your whole life you've thought God doesn't care about you, God doesn't love you, God doesn't see you, this story is for you. God does see you. God does know. God does care. There is a reckoning coming. Your abuser will not escape it. But neither will you. You need Jesus to go through hell on your behalf. If you're here and you're a Christian brother or sister in Christ, I can't think of a better thing to do in response to this story than to take communion. Because in communion, when you have that body and blood in your hands, what you're, what you're looking at is God saying, you matter. As a victim, you look at that body and your blood and you say, I matter so much that Jesus had to die for what happened to me. That when Jesus said, is there any other way? God said, no, they, they matter too much. 
You have to pay. Someone has to pay. They have to go through hell. They matter to me too much. But that you would also see in that body and that blood that you matter enough that God did not want hell for you but came and went through hell for you. And his body was broken and his blood was shed for you. That he went through hell so that you could be with him. The deacons will come forward in both East Hall and in the sanctuary and they'll pass the plates. You'll take it and take it as you are ready to do it.